Today's podcast is brought to you by Elders and Zoetis Australia. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today on The Grill, a name recognised instantly through the length and the breadth of Australia's beef industry. He started in butcher shops a long, long time ago. Today's family is the second biggest processor of livestock in Australia. He's now 88 years of age, but he's bright as a button and happy to talk to us on The Grill. Alan Tees, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Alan, I mentioned you started uh, with butcher shops when your dad came down from Toowoomba, where he was a butcher, at the behest of somebody to start a butcher shop here? No, no. What happened was we didn't have any butcher shops at that time. So Dad was asked to come down and run this Brisbane Neat Service. The fellow that was his boss there was a bloke called Bob Pekeithley. What year was this? This would have been about 1930 in the, in the time of the Depression. Pre-war? Oh, yes, wow. yes, yeah. I was born in 35, so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that was, that's what happened there, and he would have... He had 27 butchers there, and he told me that... Only Keong and Fred Keong, you might remember Fred built the abattoir at Oki. Fred was only the young brother at that time and they would deliver 100 carcasses of mutton on the Saturday morning and the butchers, there were their job was to split them down and they'd hang us the sides up all around the, the shop on a very high rail. It was, it'd be still there today, or oh, probably wouldn't be, but anyway... Uh, they used to hang them up there and people would come along and say, I'll have that one. And they were two and six, he told me, was the side of mutton. Now, the butcher would cut the forequarter off and cut the leg off and do the cutlet, do the chops, just the loin chops. But that, that was it. And that cost two and six. Wow. You, you had 29 butchers. 27. 27 in the one shop. Yes. And I believe well, they're working out the back and right. everywhere, yes. But I believe you had so many customers, you had a band outside the shop yeah, to entertain them. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that was, that, that was, and he was only 21, but he was management material even at that age, you know. He was a pretty good businessman, Dad. Anyway, that, that's the story of Wool and Gabber and... Uh, did he move to then start his own business at Cooparoo or...? No, Bob Keithley then bought the Gladstone Road Butchery and Dad was in, his shareholder in that and that was the first time he had anything to do with the ownership of a butcher shop. He didn't own the Gabber at that time, Bob owned that but Bob bought the shop up at Gladstone Road and that was Dad was half in that with him. Mm. So, So how long did this... Butcher shop business go on in the family? Well, uh, Dad, when when his brothers come back from the war in 1945 or 46, uh, he bought, uh, Max was the youngest, and he had done a, some butchering. He had been a butcher. So they bought the shop at Bennett's Road. It's still there. And that was when Max went in. He was the youngest brother. He went in there and, and he ran that shop. So Dad then bought the Brisbane Meat Service off Bob Pekeithley. So that gave him the one at Bennett's Road, the one at the Gabba and the one at Gladstone Road. And around the corner was a little shop around there and he turned that into a butcher shop. 
and that meant the big shop and the little shop joined at the back. So it was quite an interesting thing, and I worked there. I mean, I nearly chopped my finger off one Saturday morning serving. and That's because you're a left-hander, of course. <laughs> you're right, you're right, Kerry, you're right. Now, that's just after the war. There would have been a lot of suburban butcher shops around in those days. Oh, down the, down the Stones Corner and through there, yes. Um, the Yulman brothers used to be down there at Stones Corner. There, there were... Two or three butcher shops at Woolonga- at uh, Stones Corner. But in those days, in 1930, when the Depression was on, they were attracted there because that was an auction. They'd have an auction at the end of the day. Anything that wasn't sold, they'd auction it off. So you might buy a, a she- half a sheep for two bob instead of two and six. You know, and that sort of thing. So... Um- how did it develop from there? You got more and more shops? Or? Yeah, we finished up in 1958. Uh, Dad had uh, eight butcher shops. Wow. And there was one at Mount Cravat, two at the Gabba. We had one around West End, the, down near the, the ice cream factory. So that was another one. And who supplied your beef then? Well, what happened was... Dad, being a bit of an entrepreneur, he uh, he thought we should get into the wholesale meat business because we had enough shops, and so my job was to go out and buy sheep and lambs, pigs and calves. Even I bought for the wholesale business, and we used to supply the shops through that wholesale business. And, uh, and did you buy cattle as well? Yes, I, I I became the livestock buyer for the for the place. I, How uh, many were you buying a week? Well, at Cannon Hill, one week I bought a thousand cattle. Wow, that was when we were a bit bigger, of course, in those days in the export business. But I bought a thousand cattle in one week. Now they had two sales in the one week because they couldn't get all the cattle in for the the, the Tuesday. Uh, no, Thursday was the sale day, so they had a sale I think on the Tuesday and the Thursday. Tell me about buying cattle in those days. You, you actually, they weren't actually weighed, were they? You had, oh, no. to, you had to guess I just guess, their weight, but how they would dress out. I, w- I would, yes, I would guess their their weight dressed, dressed weight. So you know, I, I'd look at the penner bullocks, and I'd have to say, oh well, they're probably going to average about five hundred and twenty pounds carcass weight. Then I'd calculate quickly to uh, <laughs> to work out that and. Uh, that's yeah. So I bought up to a thousand cattle in one week there, but so, many a week I bought five hundred, six hundred. So when you, the when the be, business you, got bigger, you became quite a master of uh, of judging what a, a what a steer might dress out of. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I, I and I took a pride in in at the end of the week when they were all killed to see how close I got with my estimates when yeah. I bought them. And that uh, that used to be my guide. If I overestimated them or underestimated them, that used to be my guide. The other two buyers that I respected a lot was Graham Flynn from Tancred, who finished up with AMH, and Jack O'Hagan, who had a boning room at, at rented at Cannon Hill. Yes, you were mates as well as competitors. Oh, we were mates as yeah. well. You know, I mean. Not that we wouldn't bid on each other. I mean, we we we'd get up each other too if we if they they were misbehaving. And yeah. that sort who, of thing. Who, who was the best buyer you competed against? Do you remember? Oh, Flinny. Uh huh. Yeah, Graham Flynn. Do you remember a name called Reggie Tyndale? I do. He worked for me. 
He did. He was. He worked. He was at Lakes. He was buying for Lakes Creek in Rockhampton when I used to fly up every Sunday night for the sale up there. And um, Reg Tyndale, I reckon he used to count how many we'd bought because he'd be up you the last couple of heads you wanted to buy to fill your trucks and that. So he he was he was a good fellow, Reg, a very very nice fellow. I remember he rang me, and he had the flu, and I said, "How are you going, Reg?" He said, "Oh, I've got a slippery grip on the world at the moment, I can tell you." <laughs> and that was the way old Reg spoke, you know. Yes. So when when did you decide that Tease the Butcher might become Tease the Processor? Oh, fifty eight. Uh huh. And uh, we had the, all eight butcher shops then. And what happened was Dad decided we should get into the mutton, so Al would get out and buy sheep, and we used to bone them at Bottomley's Iceworks, which was down near the Deshen there. We had rented a little boning room, and uh, and we'd take our butchers from some of the plants, uh, some of the butcher shops, and uh, we would bone sheep there. So that got us into the export market for mutton. That was that was the start of us doing anything. Then we built, a, we had the little abattoir at Beanley, and we built a boning room there, and we started to kill sheep there for a start, and then it became a, a beef abattoir. That's that's still your headquarters down there, Beanley, isn't it? Place it's, of it, yeah, it's, it's one of the stars in the crown, yes, yeah. let's put it that way. Alan, I'm now handing the microphone to a bloke you know very well. Among other topics, he wants to revive your memories of the great cattle price crash of the 70s. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Alan, here's Beef Central's uh, owner, partner, uh, starter, founder indeed, Principal John Condon. Take it away, John. Yes, morning, Alan. It's uh, it's great to sit down and and uh, and you know recollect some of the history with you. And um, I've had the pleasure of knowing knowing you forty odd years and enjoyed every single engagement I think we've ever had over those years, both in your mm. role in Tees, but also your representative role with the meat processing mm. industry, uh, which you served a, a lengthy period in as chairman. So, look, yes, we thought we should talk about because you know there's not that many people around anymore who have direct connection with that beef slump era from 1974 to 78. Mm. So, you know, we've heard of the horror stories of how cattle prices uh, collapsed and that sort of thing. But what was your sort of overarching uh, impression and recollections of what happened in that era? Well, obviously the, uh, there were too many cattle about and, and so they, it, they sort of flooded the market. Uh, I would say that from my point of view, uh, in the early 70s, that was the worst of it. And with with Noel Burrows, I don't know if you remember Noel Burrows, a lovely man, big man. He and I bought a thousand steers and we put them on adjustment at Winton. We left them there for six months so they would have grown and we had to pay the adjustment fees. But we sold them for $27. So we thought, well, that wasn't bad. And that was the recovery, starting of the recovery of, of the cattle slump. Boy, oh boy, you know, I've just sold cattle at 200,000 head. Our last lot of cattle from Sedgeford averaged $3,000 each. Did you ever think you'd see a day when uh, uh, you, know, you know, a slaughter animal would be worth that amount of money? No, no, never, 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 no. So the, during the beef slump... Markets evaporated, Japan disappeared, the United mm. States disappeared. 
How did tea survive? Where did you find homes for the product you were producing? Well, we had a domestic market as well as the export markets, and USA was a big saviour for us. That's that's where a lot of the meat was going, yeah, box beef for USA. So that was basically where it was all going. You know, you ask where it was going, well, that's where it was going, yep. in the US. But you did also explore some niche markets that you know had never even been considered, and Israel comes to mind. You did a trade into Israel for a period. Um, not just certain of that we did uh, i mean you know we always always sold a fair bit of meat into uk as well so we at one stage there we were supplying into uk and uh, france and japan they were the main markets I, i guess and usa usa was very important to us do you think anybody in the industry actually saw the beef slump coming or was it one of these things that literally came out of nowhere? Well, I, look, I tell you what, I can tell you about producers who probably were asking $35 for their bullocks and finished up taking 15 when the slump came because mm. nobody was going to buy them at that price. But they hung on and hung on and hung on. That was the problem. They there was an oversupply of cattle because they hung on and wouldn't take the price. So that, that sort of helped the slump, really. That, that was the reason why we were having the slump, yeah. It went on for something like four years, 74 Something to like that. I'd say around about 72, it started, things started to improve. Well, there was an instance where we sold those steers from, we bought them at $12 and sold them at 27 mm. That was just the start of a little bit of a recovery in the price of cattle. Financially, what impact did it have, do you think, on on the industry generally, both producers and and processors? Well, it ruined some of the blokes that had very good cattle and they were getting nothing for, you know, no value uh, the way it was. So uh, I'd say that uh, it would have ruined a few of the producers. Mm. You know, I was always told that your first loss is your best loss. So get in and take it and be done with it. Take it on the chin and take it from there. Uh, a lot of the producers just wouldn't do that. But, of course, all they did, they kept cattle. They got them fatter and uh, and they didn't get really, they, you know, some of them would say to us, oh, look, it doesn't matter. I'll leave them in the paddock. They'll just put on weight and I'll get paid for the extra weight they put on. But that wasn't really the cure. So the industry started to emerge from 78 and then, you know, some new markets started to emerge. Uh, chill trade into Japan, for example, and Tees was an absolute pioneer in that space. We were. What, what we was were. your recollections of that era? And I used to go to Japan every six months with my marketing manager and um, and he did a good job, Peter Rickard. And we finished up what we did in Japan one of the fellows who I could see in the 90s when we were heading towards the 90s that we had to have a representative in Japan because we were changing from having agents there to people doing direct business. So Yoshi Ishikawa, he became our manager in in Japan and we had an office there and and he worked for us. He still he still does a bit of business with us, I can tell you, but he's retired, but he does a bit of business with us still. So I might be wrong, but I, th- I have a feeling that Yoshi, in fact, had a prior career as a uh, drummer in a Japanese rock band. Oh, he could have had. I don't know that one. <laughs> I, 
But Yoshi was a very, very good, good guy. He he tapped into the important companies, likes of Hanan and those sort of people who ran the show, you know. And uh, so Yoshi was very good friends with him and played golf with them and did all the things you got to do. And I knew that we couldn't, as Australians, do the job uh, a, a Japanese could do. So in 1990, I got him to leave Namura Trading Company and work for Tees, and he opened our office there, our first office there. Yeah, there were a lot of international players emerging onto the scene in those days, weren't there, Alan? You had uh, Vesties and uh, Borthwicks, etc., etc., and the more to come. Mm. And you had strong domestic players as well. I mean, there's Tankards, of course, T.A. Fields yeah. and Keong at Aradoki. Yeah, Keong not so big, but uh, certainly T.A. Field and yeah. Tankard, uh, they were opposition and there were several of them. A lot of competition. There was about seven, I suppose, companies yeah. buying for that business. Time for a break. You're on the grill with Kerry Lonigan and Alan Tees. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control. And add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your wieners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard available from your local vet today. Welcome back. You're on the grill with Beef Central brought to you by Elders and Rhinogard from Zuetis. Our guest today, Alan Tees. Now, you ended up having an in- interesting uh, conversation with uh, Kerry Packer late one night. He called you out of the blue. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. It's a name which services through the meat industry over the years. But tell us about your... your well, opinion. look, I couldn't speak more highly of Kerry Packer, but I will say, Carol was in bed and she answered the phone. Anyway, she said, Alan, Alan, quick. Well, I said, why? What's wrong? She said, Kerry Packer's on the phone. I said, oh, shit, at this hour of the night, you know, half past nine, I think it was, or something like that. Anyway, uh, I answered the phone. I said, hello, it's Alan Tees here. Yes, Alan, how are you? He said, look, I've got, I'm half in the meat industry, but I'm losing money and I'm not doing very well. And that was when he split with Tancred and uh, Jeff didn't get much out of it because he didn't, hadn't contributed. Anyway, um, Kerry said, we've got to get our companies together. And I said, well, you know, uh, we, we, we're very private. Jerry he said, that's all right. He said, I'm, pri-. he said, I, I, I'm private too and I don't like biz- people knowing my business. But he said, um, come down and see me. So I went down and visited him and I took Brad with me. That was the first time he'd really been with me on a on a deal and um, he was very impressed with Kerry and Kerry I got to say this you didn't have to have his signature on a piece of paper his word was his bond and he never ever broke that bond I mean whatever they people say about him I found he was a very straight shooter but don't cross him if you crossed him you had trouble in fact, I I remember asking his chauffeur down there, 
he took he drove us back to the airport, you know, and I said, you know, what how how does Kerry and James compare? Now this mightn't be the right thing to say, but he he said Kerry's bark was worse than his bite, but James's bite is worse than his bark. <laughs> Just before we move on, yeah. Alan, um, just prefacing this. So at that point, uh, uh, Kerry owned uh, Lakes Creek yes. and Innisfail. Innisfail and Catherine. And Catherine. He so, got them from Tancred. Yes. Yeah. So what do you think attracted Kerry Packer to engaging financially in, well, the, meat, th- in the meat processing industry? I, I think he thought he could make money. Then when he got into it, he found out he couldn't make money out of it. And, you know, Lakes Creek, it took us a while to get Lakesy Creek going. And as a matter of fact, I'll tell you about Lakes Creek. Brad, at that time, was the, I was the chief executive and the chairman. He was the general manager. He and Paul Day, a bloke that worked for us, who lived in Brazil for a while and he married a Brazilian girl, a lovely person. Anyway, um, he, uh, he went with Brad to Brazil and Brad employed 600, 600 mind you, uh, Brazilians to come out and get Lakes Creek going because we couldn't get the local people. It was one of those places where there was a lot of industrial problems and things like that. And I I spoke to the union quite, quite honestly and I said, look, we'll get Lakes Creek going but there's a lot of people we're not going to put back on. And the union said, and I shouldn't say this, I suppose, but they said to me, that's good, Alan, because they're the ones that are causing us the biggest problems. <laughs> now, so, I don't know whether I should say a thing like that. That sounds to me like that may well have been the first example of overseas labour having any significant it was. impact it in was. the Australian processing yeah, it industry. was. And this would have been in the early 90s, I suspect, but that you've got 600 Brazilian Workers. workers to come and work with yeah, you and Rocky. Yeah, boners and slices wow. and packers. I- included in that, we gave the fellows that were coming over, we said if your wife's prepared to be a packer, she can come as well. So we got in and there was a mix of wives and girlfriends and whatever have you. All uh, as a result of the packer deal. And is it true that packer said to you once, now I don't want to see you again except when you're handing over the dividend check? He said, I I want to see you once a year with the dividend check. (laughs) That's all I want to say. It's your business, Alan. It's not not mine. Your business. And you, uh, all I want to do is see you once a year with the dividend check. You've got good memories of Packer. Oh, he was a a straight shooter to me. A lot of people would have said he wasn't, but I, I, I just found he's so honest. And you didn't need that right that signature on a bit of paper. You all you needed to do was have his word, and that word was his bond. Does so, the name LG Batten mean anything to you? LG Batten was the bane of everybody's life because <laughs> he wanted to buy all the cattle, and he wasn't going to. And he's shipping them through to England. Well, Vestes really did a job on him. Because when he landed there with all this meat and they knew what day it was coming and yeah. what, what ship it was on, they flooded London with meat. And, of course, he, got, he guts it. He, 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 didn't get, he didn't get the value he thought he was going to get for it. And he finished up having to sell it on the cheap because they had gutsed the market. 
There and were, that, that put him out of business. There were a few foreign investors who came in and uh, ended up going away with their tail between their legs, weren't there? Over the yes, yeah. yes, yes, there has been. Yeah. But you found, obviously, a comfortable partnership with Cargill. Cargill, yeah, no trouble yeah. with Cargill. How I, did the Cargill connection come about? Cargill rang Brad. Uh, he, he was good mates with John Keating, who was the manager here at the time, an American, and a lovely fellow, really, a top bloke. And he said to Brad, is there anything we can do? We're not doing any good here. We can't make money. Is there anything we can do to join with T's? And Brad said, oh, yes, I, I don't have any problems. We can... I'm sure we can arrange things. but um, So the location of their plants and feedlots and yours were complementary. It, it was a good well, we fit, had Well, we it? had Condamine feedlot, which was much bigger than Gin Lee. And um, so we, um, yeah, they, they, they were complementary. So we finished up with two feedlots and then their two abattoirs plus our narrow court. I mean, narrow, they, they had Wagga and 10... Tamworth, I should say, they had those two and the feedlot, and they joined with us. And at that time, we had Beanley, Billawheeler, Rockhampton under our under our wing, and and then Narracourt, I must yeah. add as well. So Cargill in the US, enormously successful meat processing mm. company. Mm. Why do you think they couldn't make a go of it in Australia? Well, they they weren't weren't used to the style of business we had to do in Australia. We were export companies, meat exporters. They are domestic people. So their thinking was all domestic-y type thing, whereas we, we, we looked at the export more than anything else. So I think it was that we had the expertise to export and do that job properly, and I think that was where we succeeded, I think. It's been the situation has always been the margin, the profit margin has shifted from one end of the industry to the other. It has, yes. Depending on seasonal conditions, yeah. international market circumstances. Mm. Do you think there's any way we can find some sort of equilibrium where the industry at large works out a way to more equitable, not so much equitably, but evenly share? margin so we're not getting these extraordinary swings well you see we in the last 12 months the processes have had a bad run because there haven't been enough cattle around and we can't get labor so we can't run the plants as hard as we'd like to because we haven't got the labor and and and, uh, the processes would have had a very tough time this last 12 months we would expect that that will turn around, though, in the new year because there's going to be a, quite a lot of cattle start to come around about August or September or so. And um, because if you, if you have a look at the reports, that Western country, that Channel country, it's going to be magic. And when it's magic, it is magic. You know, and, and, and I, I remember going to Ta- Tambo, not Tambo. Uh, Tambar? Tambar. Tambar, yes. And uh, Bill Norton and I went out. We flew down from the north. We were up at uh, the north and we flew down on the company plane so to Bill, Timber. I can just add, Bill Norton was then... Um, he was uh, the manager uh, of Stanbroke. Stanbroke. And Bill Norton and I flew down there. And they told me there, and what's his name? Scott, I think it was... George Scott? One, I'm not just oh, sure. Oh, Bill Scott was Bill George's Scott. father. Yep. Bill Scott was the fellow. 
and he told me that they would drop their stores in at the top of the, of the channels and they wouldn't touch them until they got down to the bottom, down to the lakes, and they'd pull them out there and they were all fat bullocks, you know. So that was how they ran those properties. Now, I don't know if all the other channel country places run the same, but I thought it was pretty unique to think you could drop the stores in here and you pick them up down here 12 or 18 months later and they're fat bullocks. Yeah. Pretty interesting. And, 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 and there's going to be quite a lot of cattle come out of the West eventually. So, Alan, what's, the, what's one or a couple of outstanding memories of your career over the last 70-odd years or so? Well, I suppose I started off buying sheep and lambs because my dad... I used to drive my father up to Dolby every Monday and we'd buy lambs for the wholesale department and we'd buy sheep. And the better sheep, we would wholesale them. The ones that weren't... Uh, they were boner shorter sheep. They went to Hutton, Fogger, Jones out at Zilmere. And so we'd sell... They were the the worst of the sheep and the best of the sheep we kept and sold them in the wholesale department. And we used to do quite a lot of lambs. And then Dad got a rush of blood to the head and said, we should be buying these down south, the lambs as well. So I used to go away every Sunday. I'd drive to Tamworth. I'd do the Tamworth lamb sale, lamb and sheep sale. Then the next day I'd go on, or that afternoon, I'd go on to Gunnedah and I used to do the sale there at Gunnedah. I'd ship them back as quick as I can, particularly the Monday morning ones, ship them out of there and they'd be back in Brisbane in the Tuesday morning and uh, we would get them killed at, at the abattoir, Brisbane abattoir. And that was a, a routine thing that, when the kids were young, uh, that was a routine thing for me to do. When you were a young cattle buyer and livestock buyer, mm. um, rail freight was an absolutely integral part of yep. the transfer of cattle from the west, particularly, to, to the coastal processing plants. Um, can you foresee a time when rail can make a, a more significant comeback in terms of how we shift uh, slaughter cattle around the, the well, continent? Well, we, we used to, I used to go to Rocky uh, every week on a Sunday and we I'd do the sale on the Monday. Possibly I could go out and do Springshore and Emerald, Springshore and Claremont, I should say, and uh, that would be my Tuesday. And that was, that, was, that was a pretty regular thing. Now, those cattle all came down by rail. No road transport, all rail. And very successfully, I might add. Mm. Yeah, so there was no problem with the rail and there's no reason why it wouldn't, wouldn't act again in the same way. So, Alan, later in your career, one of the um, legacies you left was you had a, sig a, a, a significant interest in the value-added part of the meat industry um, at a time when that wasn't particularly on trend. How successful has that been and why did you pursue that interest in doing more with cuts of meat rather than just sticking it in a box and sending yeah. it overseas? No, I think that we felt that that was the future of the meat industry was to do whatever you could to advance the value of the meat. And we do a lot of, um, uh, I'm not going to mention names, but we do, we do a lot of cooked meat now and you'll see them in one of the big supermarkets, and it's um, 
it's our product. It's coming from uh, out at uh, Hemet there. We've got uh, a factory there. So uh, we're, we're well into the value adding and we think that, that you know, that's, that's a part of the industry really, the value adding. So I recently had the, uh, the pleasure of going out and having a look at uh, the magnificent new T's um, uh, centralised hub at the, at, the, at the Port of Brisbane. Yeah. And readers can have a look at an article on Beef Central on that topic. But it absolutely blew me away, the, the amount of technology and automation and robotics and, and artificial intelligence. Uh, the, the, the facility was like nothing I've ever seen in the beef industry. I'm wondering what your vision is for how a typical meat processing plant may look in the future. Well, what we thought we'd do with the coal store, and it, it's not running as well as we want. I mean, you, you've got to let these things break their teeth, I suppose. But instead of sorting all the meat at the plants, for instance, Lakes Creek, we got lines of product coming down. We got to put them on this carton and on that on that pallet and on that pallet, sort them all out and send them down sorted. With this down here at Hemet, down at the, the wharf, we can send those mixed those boxes in mixed, and the, the sorting there is done automatically with with barcodes, I assume. One oh, all barcodes, well. yeah, 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 all barcodes. Yeah. But that is done automatically, which means. We don't have to sort it at the plant. We can sort it. Now, we haven't got that 100% at this stage. We're working on it, and it's going to take time. But we could sort all that product uh, at, at the coal store, and it saves the plants having to sort it and palletise it. So do you, do you see the possibility of a future meat plant being heavily automated with robots and autonomous vehicles and things uh, is, is, I can't see I can't see the process of slaughtering being a robotic thing I don't believe in that mm. a boning meat no every animal has got a little bit different shape like we are you know as humans so I, I don't see robotics doing that but I think in the handling and like the, the that's the, I think where robotics will come in and this is what's ha- what we're trying to achieve down at the coal store. Can I take you back to your the initial start where your butchers became processors? Is there a correlation there between running a processing business with a background as a butcher knowing what the customer wants instead of somewhere else, someone else coming into the industry maybe as a meat trader or something mm. rather than mm. a butcher? Well, I think it's important to be able to pack... The, the way this is why I used to go to Japan every six months. We talked to the customers there and they told us what they wanted and what they didn't want. And I think we, we, we sort of, um, you know, did what they wanted. We supplied what they wanted. What the customer wants. That's right, yes. yes. Generally speaking, I, I don't think this is true uh, 100%, but the processing industry has always had a them versus us attitude towards producers and agents yeah. and things like this. It's a shame that they yeah. do that. It did, it's prevailed, hasn't it? Do you still think it's around? Or oh yes, it's yeah. still a we and us. I oh. mean, I had I've just sold two big properties in the west, Sedgeford, which was one hundred and twenty thousand acres, and I sold uh, Baratria, Baratria yeah. which was two hundred thousand acres. So I, I've had a bit of a taste of 
<laughs> that sort of thing is along the line, well, and there really isn't. There isn't. Shouldn't be that animosity. Yeah, why, why? Why is it so? Is it, is it envy or is it just? Oh no, they always think that you're touching them. If yeah. you're buying stock off and you're touching them, and uh, and we all rec- always reckoned we were getting touched. So yeah, you know, I suppose yeah. that 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 sort of thing. Yeah. Trust, trust us, trustworthy. Processor, he used to know. He he said that oh, we processors are only here to help struggling producers, <laughs> and uh, and the room would erupt in laughter. Of course, <laughs> John, uh, so much history and so many names we've been talking about for the last twenty or thirty minutes or so. It's been a great honour and a pleasure to talk to Alan Tees. Alan Tees, thank you for being on the grill. Okay, as long as you don't grill me too much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this has been the Weekly Grill brought to you by Elders and Zoetis Australia. <laughs>